Is that who's round you can hear in your uh, headphones? I predict it's going to be a great one. underneath the National Portrait Gallery uh, and I'm interviewing somebody who I've not seen interviewed about Doctor Who before so this is very exciting for me so I'm going to ask her to introduce herself and tell me why I'm talking to her about Doctor Who. Okay, Um, well it's very nice to be here. Um, My name is Maureen Morris and many many years ago um, I did a lot of radio and they were casting a particular episode of Doctor Who where The main baddies were all huge, wonderful spiders and they needed um, women to voice them. And the only uh, radio actress that they knew was Isanne Churchman, who'd done various other things for um, Doctor Who. And um, my husband, uh, at the time, uh, was Barry Letts' PA. And Barry said to George, do you know any radio actors? He said, well, my wife's a radio actor. (laughs) because uh, I was in a radio um, serial at that time called Wagoner's Walk. So I became one of the spiders, and um, Kismet Delgado, who had recently been made a widow, she was basically the other one. So yes, so the planet of the spiders, I think it's around about 1974 or something what? like that. And um, yeah, my children were very, very excited. They were telling everyone at school, our mum's going to be in Doctor Who. And then they found out that I was going to kill Doctor Who, and then they went, oh, mum's going to kill Doctor Who. Um, and so I became um, the person who finished off John Pertwee and he became Tom Baker. Yeah, because you're not just a giant spider, you are the great one. I am the great one. Yes, I am the biggest spider in the universe. And um, in those days, uh, unlike now, you actually rehearsed. So I think it was six episodes, though I don't think we were in all of them. I can't really remember it. It was a long time ago. But we rehearsed in a, you know, in the usual kind of BBC-type rehearsal rooms where there's various rooms and sets and things just marked out on the floor. And on the last kind of major rehearsal before we went to the place where we were going to actually shoot it, um, Barry came up to me afterwards when he was doing the kind of notes generally in, and he looked a bit worried, and um, he did say... Uh, you know, when we come to record it and everything, he said, you will you will just go on a bit, won't you? Because it was like being a baddie in a pantomime or something. She was the most evil creature you could imagine. She was after this big crystal thing. And um, once she got it, she was going to blow the world, world up, which in fact happened, but it blew her up as well. It didn't blow the world up, it blew her up. So when we actually went to do it, I've been trying to think where it was. Um... It wasn't like Television Centre. I, th- I think it must have been around about White City somewhere. Um, and I was in a kind of hut at one end of the studio. And I had a pair of earphones. And in one ear, I could hear the gallery sound. And in the other ear, I could hear the actors. And I had a television screen. And, they, and I could see the action on the television screen. So it was quite a tricky job. In the in the left ear, the, the gallery ear, you'd hear uh, the the director saying, you know, um, camera four cut next and everything, and the, and various people in the box, and then there'd be a pause, and they'd have a talk about things and how the scene, and and um, and they'd say, oh for God's sake, just tell him to get a move on, just tell him to stop being so mean, just get on with it. And then the 
the PA would come down and she would come, you know, go down. And that was really, really lovely. But I think, you know, maybe perhaps just a little bit quicker, that would be lovely. <laughs> so you realise all the, all the, all the sort of terrible <laughs> things that were being said about you normally when, when you were acting and everybody had been really lovely to you and upstairs in the box, they're sort of cursing and swearing. So, yeah, so when we did, uh, when we did do this particular end scene where um, I finally, finally get hold of the crystal... Um, I, I don't have any very clear, but anyway, I did go on and on and on. <laughs> Barry had Barry had wanted and was kind of like screaming and yelling and you know laughing and being um, like a sort of pantomime person. And eventually, someone came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, "That's great." And then they well, all the technicians clapped, which is a really, really you know that's very um, it's a you know it's a big compliment because they see everything I and mean, mostly they're as bored as anything. So. The fact that they were very, you know, that they thought I'd done a good job was very nice. So, yes, yeah, so that's it, really. Um, I don't remember a great deal more um, about it. Uh, my favourite doctor was always Pat Troughton, who I got to meet because I did a Z cars with him. Um, and I have worked with Chris Eccleston way, way, way before he became uh, famous. When I was doing a play in Bristol, he was doing his very first job out of drama school, and he's a very, very, very sweet man. But I don't have any other connection with Doctor Who, I'm afraid. Well, it's interesting because I have, because I knew your friends with uh, Patrick, because I have seen a line drawing done of you by Patrick Troughton when you visited him when, when he was poorly, was it? Or, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so tell me about um, Patrick. So you obviously stayed stayed friends with him. Well, pa- yes, pa- Patrick was lovely, and I'd say I did a, I did a dead cards with him, and um, I used to live in Richmond, and at that particular time he lived, and well, and he lived in Kew, and uh, there was a young very young boy, well, not that, but not very young, but I mean, I think he was about 16, 17, maybe, who was in the episode of the of Zed Cars that we did, who um, must have had, he must have had a road accident because he ended up in hospital in, in a, you know, in quite strapped up and various things broken. And Patrick and I, I used to go out from time to time and um, visit visit him. So. Uh, you know, so sometimes I'd be in Patrick, um, Patrick's house, and he was a very keen artist. And my husband has a pencil drawing that Patrick did of me, which he did of a, from a, um, one of my like, spotlight photos or something like that. Yeah, he was he was a sweetheart. Really, 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 really liked him. He's an interesting character, Patrick, because he's he's the sort of one that we almost know the least about because he was such a consummate character actor almost, yeah. wasn't he? Was yeah. Um, yes, he wasn't a great one for publicity or, um, or anything like that. Um, I think one of his sons is, is an actor still. Oh, and Michael's just come back to it, so Michael and David are both actors. Right, and his daughter's a very, very good um, illustrator. Yeah. Um, I think he was married several... I don't really know that much about him. I think he was married... Possibly twice, or yeah, and he had yeah, he had various things going on, <laughs> shall we say? <laughs> um, but he just was he just was such a nice person, and very um, just very unactory, really, and very 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 much his feet feet on the ground, and um, just such a twinkle in his eye. I know he was lovely, I'm very fond of him. And um, you mentioned, of course, because Barry Letts was the producer when you did Doctor Who, and it also directed Planet of the Spiders. It was his pretty much his swan song. Yeah. So. Um, and George, of course, must have worked very closely with him. So, what do, what do you remember of Barry? Um, and he, I mean, he was very, I mean, he, uh, you know, again, he was a very, very decent human being, very, very nice, very nice man. I also worked for him 
Um, I think he did one of the Dickenses, um, and I can't remember now who I was, but um, it, it, Dickens is always great because you get to play such extraordinary, um, extraordinary characters. Um, so I, I got to know him off and on over the years quite, quite a bit for various different things that, that he did. In those days, the BBC was a very nice place. It was, I mean, Joan Craft and people like that. Um, this is a bit like a kind of old club, really. They all, you know, I mean, I don't know, I'm sure there was lots of bitching and things going on that I didn't know anything about, but the odd, the odd to when George was working on things and there would be um, end of do parties and things and I would, you know, I would be going along as his other half. Um, I was always, when I always felt it was like a big family and it was really, really nice. But as I say, it was, it was so different then in that if you were on a, on a programme, you got paid a retainer, you know, you you went to a read through. Um, I mean, later on, when I um, when I was in something like Sons and Lovers, for instance, where I only played quite a small part, but quite a difficult part, never went to a read through, never met anybody. Was eventually kind of bussed out to some field somewhere in the middle of Macclesfield or something like that. Uh, and you know, you you know, you. you in a costume you suddenly come out and you do your lines to someone you've never met in your life before and it's a very weird way of working and I've always thought it's very unfair really because a lot of the small parts um, are actually very important um, they, you know something may turn on that particular you know that's part of the reason why they're there if they weren't important they'd have been cut um, so to not be part of it is puts a terrific burden on you some directors are very good about being aware of that and making sure that, you know, if you're being taken out to a location and things like that, that, that everyone gets together for a meal and there's a read-through and stuff like that. But, but some people don't have that kind of sensitivity, maybe because they've never been actors themselves. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, t- take, us, take us back to, um, to the beginning. What, what, uh, what made you want to act and, and how did you go about it? I went to a girls' grammar school, Hutchison's Girls Grammar, and um, and while I was there, I went to the Royal Scottish Academy. They did, had a kind of junior course that you know, that um, Thursday evenings and Saturday mornings, I think. And two or three mates and I from school, we used to go to that. Um, I was very good at Macbeth when I was at school. Um, spent hours making my costume. Uh, <laughs> Um, and when it came, you know, after I'd done my... Well, we didn't call, didn't call them A-levels in that time. You did highers and lowers. Uh, anyway, when I'd done my schooling, I could have gone to university and read either English or history. I didn't really want to do either of those things because I thought, what would you do after... And we, had, we had no kind of career guidance at all. I thought you'd have to become a teacher. I didn't fancy that. My art teacher was very, very keen that I should go to art school. And although I didn't sit it, I could have I could have gone to the Glasgow Arts, which I now rather regret. Um, but I, I auditioned to go, I mean, because I was already doing the junior course, as it were, at the Royal Scottish, I um, auditioned there and I got, got taken in, so I did three years um, training there. Um, so I was um, a year um, below Tom Conti, um, and in, the, and in the same year as Hannah Gordon, um, both names people would know. There were various other people that are not not, not particularly well known. I don't think. Um, so yes, yeah, so I did. So I did that. And George turned up 
in my very final year at college and he was doing stage management so that's how that's how we got together um, and um, yeah we got married shortly well about a year after I left college because I was working in Edinburgh at what was the Gateway Theatre which is no longer there um, and we got we got married during that time and then went back to Glasgow and eventually he was it was very difficult to get work he eventually um, came to London to work and when he finally finally got a job as a, an acting AFM an acting floor manager at the BBC then I and the two daughters came down so um we were, we were living with a friend in Richmond and basically I've been in London sort of ever since. So I, I write a bit of poetry and I am bilingual, so sometimes I write Scottish poetry and sometimes English poetry, depending on, depending on the poem, really. I don't necessarily choose the poem, usually choose it. It chooses, it's choose, for, chooses, chooses for you, does it? It chooses for me, yeah. And I'm very, very fond of Scotland and in lots of ways... Um, I used to have a lot of friends who lived in Glasgow and I used to go up quite a lot and visit and relatives and things. But m most of my relatives have died now and, and a lot, most of the friends I had who lived there have gone to live in other places. And although I, I, there's lots that I really like, I can't stand the weather. It's just too cold and too wet. Um, and so I don't go much anymore, which is a shame. But anyway, so but I do think, I do identify myself as a Scot rather than an English person. And, most, and an awful lot of the work that I did um, was Scottish. I mean, I was in... Um, I was in the street twice, and I think both times I played a Scottish character. Both times it was a kind of holiday job in that, in that somebody else was not there and they'd, they wrote in a kind of, you know, one of those weird kind of filler stories... Um, so the first time, which was, God, about 100 years ago, Len Fairclough and Nev Boswell were sharing a flat or a house, and it was an absolute tip. And it was decided that they needed to have a kind of Girl Friday or they needed to have somebody to kind of, like, you know, look after them. And they put an advert in the local shop. And um, Deirdre Costello, <laughs> who's lovely and was very blonde and had big black panda eyes. Um, she applied for the job and I, I was a sort of um, a very capable young kind of Edinburgh girl who had just come out of Doe school and was a very, very good cook, but absolutely no nonsense at all. Anyway, so we both applied for the job and we both had to make a meal or something. Anyway, I made, you know, the most wonderful steak pie and all the rest of it, um, but she wore... <laughs> A very very short miniskirt. Anyway, she got the job. So that was that was that was one storyline. And then the next time, which was quite a long time after that, I can't remember how many years, I was in it because um, Julie Goodyear was on a cruise because I think she'd actually got married in real life, and so or maybe she, anyway, or maybe her character had got anyway. She wasn't there. There was a marriage in it somewhere. I don't know. It was the character that got married, or she got married. But anyway. She, she was not in the Rover's Return, and so they needed uh, a relief bar lady. So they did the same. They did so they did the same kind of storyline in that they got a you know a really dotty kind of blondie kind of girl to come in, and um, Betty got this friend of hers from around the corner, and I was this very kind of much more um, you know sensible. I think it was called Maureen Beatty in that, and much more sensible. 
person. And, and uh, yeah, the blonde girl was, was called Gloria, um, a character. And um, so I did the, did the five episodes or whatever it was, which in those days you, you did over about a week. I mean, I was only up there for about a week. And Betty Driver uh, was ill while we were there. So physically she was on set, she could hardly speak. So I got all her lines, which was completely and utterly nonsensical in that I was supposed to be a newcomer in The Rover's Return. <laughs> and I'm having all these conversations with people as if I'd known them all my life, because it was a conversation she, she, should have been, she should have been having. Anyway, the, <laughs> the last day that I was there, the producer um, came up to me and said, uh, we'd like you to come back. And you know, are you free next week? And could you come back and do some more, do some more episodes? Because um, we're worried about Betty. <laughs> and I said, I'm really, I can't. I'm really sorry. I'm really, really sorry. I can't because um, I'm engaged to uh, go to Southampton and do a play um, where I'm going to be playing a chimpanzee. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm doing this amazing um, play. Um, in Southampton, which was called Animal, which was written by Tom McGrath, which was had been at the Traverse years and years before, which only has two humans in it, and all the rest of the cast are either baboons or they're chimpanzees, and it's about uh, well, it, it's sort of based on Jane Goodall, really, um, but it's also about you know colonisation and taking over things and ruin, ruining them, and, and you know, and. <laughs> So I, you know, so I could have made a fortune and bought umpteen houses because um, she, um, uh, the, you know, the blonde character. I think she was then in. It, I don't know if she's still in it. In actual she was in it for years anyway. Oh, so if you'd not been doing the chimpanzee, that so would if I hadn't been, so if I hadn't been doing the chimpanzee, it might be me. Uh, except I think there's always more more mileage from there. I mean, I think once Betty was better, there wouldn't actually have been space behind the bar for two sensible um, older women. So. It probably wouldn't have been very long, very long lasting. The chimpanzee play was actually very um, an extraordinary piece of work because uh, we rehearsed at the zoo <laughs> and we used to go to the London. We went to we were in the London Zoo and in the mornings um, we spent an agonising morning um, crouching most of the time because um, the chimps do crouch and they, you know, they, they have their knuckles on the on on the floor. So we were doing lots of that kind of that kind of movement to to be able to you know um, be relatively agile on the set, which was all climbing bars and things. And then in the afternoon, we spent uh, hours uh, observing our animal, which was a kind of thing that one of the London drama schools was doing at that time. It was a, it was a very big kind of thing. Uh, but anyway, we spent we spent so the the boys who were doing the baboons they spent. <laughs> at the baboon cave and we we were watching the chimpanzees and then we eventually did the play in London at the riverside and then we did it and then we did it in uh, in in Southampton um and it it was a it was a lovely cast we all, I mean I think because it was such a peculiar play we all got on really really well um the script was quite extraordinary in that it would say things like um well the, the two humans had dialogue but and there was one ape called Blue, who was kind of a transition, as it were, and he spoke, but quite a poetic kind of language, and he could communicate with the woman. But the rest of us obviously didn't speak. Uh, but we had to know what chimp- how chimpanzees communicated with each other. Uh, so it would say, 
the tribe arrive, <laughs> the tribe arrive um, and the um, chief um, organizes food and they all eat. So we were all very well schooled by this time. So we knew that um, you had to observe your pecking order in the tribe. So the so the chief would so there would be a, a large melon and the chief would break it open and he would get some, and then his favourite wife would get some, and then so on and so forth, right down right down the the, the pecking order, and and you had to eat it regardless of how many people had trodden on it or sat on it or or you know or whatever, and. Um, when, when we were called for beginners, we were all all trooped to the sort of side of the stage, um, because because of the nature. Of it. So then everyone would be crouched down. You see, so you know, you had your nose up somebody else's bum most of the time because of the way the way we were move, moving about. And one of the ways that chimps greet each other is they is they they present their bums and the, and um, the other chimp pats it to kind of. So for years after that, you'd be somewhere at an audition or somewhere or another, and you'd meet one of the other chimps, and they'd be like, <laughs> and then a great deal of bum patting would go, would go. People think, heaven to these madness, these mad people. So um, it's interesting because I was looking at your, your your credits. You seem to have, even though you were only in one Doctor Who. Most of your tellers seem to have been directed by people who directed Doctor Who. So oh, really? Paddy Russell, for example, you worked with several yes. times. Uh, yes, no, pal. Yes, that's right. Um, well, I suppose I got to know. I mean, I got to know Paddy because of George, I suppose, because um, he worked with her a lot. Um, and I, I did several things. I did the Moonstone um, with her. Um, yeah, she was lovely. I was in touch with her up till a couple of years ago. I'm not entirely sure whether she's still with us now. Yeah, she is. She's in Keithley. She? Yeah, she's still in Keithley. And, and um, yeah, because she runs a kind of cat charity. She, she's very, very keen on, on cats. Yeah, she was lovely and we used to see a lot of her. Um, and, yes. So I can't remember who else have I worked with. There was a uh, the doctor. Uh, Gerald Blake. Oh, yes. Fiona Cumming. Yes. Uh, well, Fiona was at the same drama college as me. So, um, and she... Um, she she knew one of the radio uh, one of her friends Kay Patrick I think who oh, was a, I who, know Kay because she directs Corrie or was just retired from well Kay Corrie. I think Kay was at um, Broadcasting House at that particular time and she was maybe working on um, Wagoner's Walk um, and I think uh, Enemy Fiona said to her blah blah I need a Scottish and she said well what about Mo you know Mo don't you so yeah so it's well it's interesting word kind of gets round and you know Sometimes you know. Sometimes, but in telly, in particular, especially in those days, I think a lot of it. Would, and again, for the smaller parts, because I never paid anything huge. Um, it was who do we know? I mean, it, it, I used to worried about it one time because I, I thought, oh, they, you know, it's, it, you know perfectly well nobody's going to give anybody a part if they think they're going to be completely rubbish at it. So they may know you, but they'll still, still give it to you because they think you're going to do it, not not because. Your George's wife, or you know, or whatever, whatever, whatever. So, but I suppose that's the thing that actors go through from time to time. No, I like. I mean, um, um, the Moonstone was a was a lovely production to to work on. Um, Paddy was always really, you know, was, was a great deal of fun. And, well, it's interesting because talking about Paddy, and you did shoulder to shoulder with Moira Armstrong, which that's of course right. was about. The, the suffragettes and things like that. Obviously, television is now a very different beast, and directors like Paddy and Moira 
were trailblazers in terms of being women who worked yeah. on television. So when you, uh, you know, I'm interested to, to see if you think if you think things have changed and, and what you know attitudes to being a woman in the entertainment industry were like then compared to what you see in terms of representation and things. Well, now. I can't. Um, to be to be really honest, I can't really answer that question because I haven't had a telly for about twelve years because I really, really don't like it. Um, I've, a lot of people say, oh, I come in and I put the telly on and it kind of it makes me relax. I mean, I, it makes me feel like a, a rabbit hypnotised by a snake. I kind of go into a sort of catatonic state and can't do anything. Um, I feel it's a great eater-up of time. Anyway, I really, really don't like it. I had a telly which eventually blew up. And um, I said to my granddaughter, will you still come and visit me? Um, you know, because I haven't got a telly, do I need to get another one? And she said, oh, don't be so stupid, Granny. I'll bring my MP3 player. So I went, okay, well, that's, all, <laughs> that's all right then. So I've never got another one, I've never got another one since. Um, I don't know how television works now. In, in the days when I was doing it, um, there was a kind of hierarchy that you had to go through. Most of the women directors had been, flo- you know, they'd been assistant floor managers and floor managers and productions and they they kind of work their way up I don't know if that if that's how it works now I mean I, I mean I, I honestly don't know to be per, to, to be perfectly honest um, I don't know how it, what kind of background television directors have I mean I think there is still um, I mean, I think there is still quite a long way to go before male and female artists of any description are treated um, equally. I think it still is more difficult for women. It's possibly a bit easier than it than it used to be. Um, I mean, how many um, women are there running theatres? Not that many. I mean, there are some, but I mean, not not that many. There are more uh, women theatre directors than there than there used to be, and there. Are, Quite a few women playwrights, but but it isn't even Stevens, is it? It's only it's only a small amount. Also, well, what about theatre? Because obviously, it's it, um, television is always sort of rather preserved by uh, the internet, movie database, and things like that. But theatre often goes unremarked on. It was yeah. obviously an actor's bread and butter. Yeah. No, I. Well, I always thought. I mean, I always counted myself as a, as a theatre actor, really. But I mean, I didn't, um, you know, I didn't ever work in the West End or anything like, or anything like that. So I, I was, um, and in, I mean, in, you know, when I started out, I mean, there were reps where, I mean, I, the, I won a prize when I was at, at college, which was to be um, the sort of Jude lead at the Gateway. But that, that meant that one week you were playing, you know, a juvenile part. The next week you were on props. And the, ne- and the next week, you were, um, you were pl- I mean, I, they, we did Juno and the Paycock, and I played Mrs. Mrs. Tancred, who's about 76, because there wasn't any, you know, so you just did anything that, you know, there was a company and everybody did kind of everything that was going on. And that system doesn't, you know, it's gone now. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we did plays for a fortnight, I've never done weekly reps, so we did plays for a fortnight, but once a fortnight, um, after the Saturday night, you could sometimes be there until you know Monday afternoon because you'd be taking one set down, putting another one up, and doing the lighting and everything. And you were frequently, you know, suddenly curled up on a you know curtain somewhere on the floor because you never you know you never got home. I mean, uh, those days are mercifully gone. But it was, it, I mean, in lots of ways, it, it was great fun, but it was also very hard. Um, but I mean, a lot of, lot of really good work was done. 
Mm. And a lot of people really, you know, really enjoyed it. I mean, I've been in other rep situations where it wasn't quite as hard as that. For instance, I went to Lancaster um, to the Duke's Playhouse um, and did it. And did I went to do two plays there, and in fact stayed on and, and did I think did five in the end. And um, I played for anyway. It was, um, it was very nice. I was queuing up in Mark Suspensers one day. I mean, Mark Suspensers is the actor's friend, really, isn't it? When you're when you're away, that you can always always get you know sort of put things together to make yourself a meal in the dig. Um, anyway, I was queuing up to buy some food in Mark Suspensers, and a, a woman kind of tapped me on the shoulder, and she said, "I just wanted to say, I've really, really enjoyed watching you." And she said, "It always takes me a while to work out which one you are." And I thought, "Well, that's really, really nice." compliment um, and that's part of the reason you know why 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 I was in it um, so so that was very nice um, yeah I had a, I mean I had a gap obviously so I worked in I worked in Scotland and then uh, when George came to London and I had two small kids and then had a third one um, it was quite difficult to get back in to get well a to get work and B to, to be able to get away and do it um, so it, it was every now and then, you know, I was when they were a bit older, I was able to kind of get away, but not not to begin with. And when I was doing the Moonstone with Paddy, uh, Martin Jarvis was in it, and uh, Robin Ellis. And um, Martin lived in Kew, I think, at that time, or somewhere quite near Richmond, anyway. And he used to drive a whole load of us to Birmingham, because that's because we rehearsed it in London, but we actually shot it in 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 Birmingham uh, the studios there and um, he was recording he was doing his um, Just William um, stories on on the on the, on the radio yeah. and um, I think he did I think because of that he did a couple of episodes of Listen With Mother I think you know he did uh, he was like this, did the stories for a week or something like that um, and he he said to me, "Why are you not on that? You should you should go you should go for that." So I I think I wrote them a, I wrote them a letter and and said, "Marcia Jones <laughs> suggested." Anyway, I did an audition for um, Listen with Mother, and I then did it. Um, well, I don't know for about three or four years, I suppose, and that was a really really terrific bread and butter program because we didn't you didn't do it all the time. Um, but a bit 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 like coronation, so you sort of do it in little blocks and then you know how many more how many more you've got but once you're in once you're in that on that circuit so from doing listen with mother I then was in something called drama workshop which you know was a kids school program and then from that I got into um uh, Wagoner's Walk Wagoner's Walk yes with the other way around it was that Kay Patrick asked Fiona if she knew any Scots actresses and that's when Fiona said me and that's how I got into Wagoner's Walk so again I was in that for about three years I suppose so and it's really terrible when you think about it how um, actors so under undervalue a lot of the things that they're they're doing I was kind of like, oh yeah well it's nothing really but it, it it you know it was the jam as far as you know it paid for the holidays and it bought the kids clothes and you know was, was, was very was, was very nice. It just was very relaxed and easy, easy work. Very just very enjoy, enjoyable. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah so I did so I did that for quite for quite a long time and then um, I haven't done any radio I don't think I think after Wagner's Walk finished uh, I'm in an well, different different programs they've changed their producers and things like that so they've they've then got yes I was ousted of listen with mother by um, Neris Hughes yeah. but when I was at the Royal Exchange um, Daphne Oxenford's daughter was Sophie Marshall th- that's yeah. right and she said oh my mother doesn't like you <laughs> well she didn't strictly speaking say that but Daphne was listen with mother for years and then she was kind of retired and and then um, I, I someone else and I took 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 over. So, but yes, it's it's something you get used to doing, and it and it, it's it's you know very nice program actually, or it was a very nice program. On television, you've got a lot of period dramas, things like yeah. Old Dark and Nicholas Nickleby and Middle yeah. March, and um, is that just because there was more of that sort of thing about it? Do you think? Or? Um, I think there was there was more of, more of that about. Um, and it was curious. I mean, most of the work I did, uh, I did was for the BBC. I mean, um, so yes, being in Zedcar several times. But I was in um, what's the thing they did on ITV, The Bill. I was in that yeah. a couple of a couple of times. And I did do um, a play for today with uh, BBC Scotland. But you, I suppose, you get in your own kind of little little kind of nook, really. Um, and I, I, I was a character actor. I mean, I very, very rarely play. Um, a character, a character that was that you would basically say was like, like. I mean, I find I think tele acting is very different to theatre acting in a way, and a lot of tele actors, especially the ones um, you know that that work a lot and are, are in soaps, play a kind of version of themselves. Yeah. And I think that's what's I think that's what's required. So it's, it's not a bad, not necessarily a bad thing, but there's something about their personality that that, that they give off. That a director or a producer will kind of go, that's that's what I want, you know, and then the scriptwriters kind of make more of it. Whereas if you're doing an Arthur Miller play or Tennessee Williams or whatever it is, you've got to fit into whatever the, the you know, whatever the writer has has written. So the thing about all the period dramas is that on the whole, you are fitting into, you know, you are bringing to life some sort of character. Uh, whereas if you're in um, Zedcars or something like that, then you're being <laughs> a more ordinary kind of person, if you see what I mean. Um, anyway, I, I did do that, but not 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 so much. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Nicholas Nickleby was uh, directed by Christopher Barry, That's another right. Doctor Who. That's right. Uh, and you were in a favourite series of mine, Secret Army. Oh God. Tristan Devere Cole, another yeah. Doctor Who. Director. Yes, he was a sweetheart. Um, yes, well, a lot of these, a lot. I mean, you know, a lot of the um, were very. And they were quite small parts, and it was just very nice. You just felt like we were part of a family, and it was just very nice to do it. But they, um, I mean, doing the suffragettes was a fairly extraordinary job because the cast were, you know, were amazing. And uh, coming in, they, the main characters had been working together for a bit with Moira, and uh, and then when they when they started rehearsing episode one, and we and the rest of us all all came in uh, on the first day. Georgia Brown and everybody there and Sean they were all wearing these amazing hats so that became the thing then the next day we all came in we all <laughs> we all had hats so whenever we went down to the canteen there was this sort of army of women all with their great fedoras on it was really great um, so that it's so uh, they were such feisty women it was it was you know very very good good fun to, to work to work with them 
it was good. Just going back to the spies briefly, because Kismet, of course, she was hired out of sort of Barry Letts sort of wanting to keep her part of the family well, after Roger died. Well, that's right. Well, I mean, the, as far as I remember, the kind of... Um, the scriptwriters were wor- were working on a new, uh, you know, an, on a new epi- a series of episodes for Doctor Who, which was going to be all about Roger, and then he died, um, and uh, so they had they had to sort of change tack, and that's when the spiders came in. And yes, I think that because um, I don't think Kismet had done any acting for a long time, um, and I think that yes, it was a kindness on on Barry's part, though, though it was never, you know, you know, it was never sort of played like that if you see sure. what I mean but it was but it was to bring her out of herself and make her feel part of something and I mean and all the you know Roger was so important to Doctor Who so that, that all the kind of Doctor Who family were, were very very pleased to have her have her there um, so she was a, a very nice woman um, yes yeah, so the, the, from that point of view it was very humane if you know what I mean mm. the, the, which you wouldn't necessarily I don't know if you'd get that nowadays but. no well, I've, look, I've exceeded the sound, I said I'd spend with you. So let's, uh, briefly, we've gone from the Doctor Who family, let's talk about yours, or specifically your daughter, Anya, who's um, made a bit of waves for herself in, in the artistic world herself. Yes, yes she has. Um, yes, my eldest daughter, uh, my eldest child, Anya Galaccio. Um, uh, well, well all, all, anyway, she went to... Um, she went to um, uh, Goldsmiths College at around about the same time as Damien Hurst and uh, she was part of that very famous show Freeze that he curated and um, she poured lead all over a big platform and it looked very very beautiful but you couldn't buy it and we thought hmm what's how's this going to work out um, and then she started to do other floor pieces um, so she did an amazingly beautiful piece at the ITA um, which was a whole bed of green leaves and um, well the, the, the stems of roses and all, all their thorns and everything and then on the top all the red all the red roses so that when you first came into the room A, the smell was amazing and B, it was just this huge carpet of beautiful, beautiful red flowers and then gradually, gradually, gradually over the course of the time the exhibition was up they the flowers air dried and they went kind of brown and rusty it looked like dried blood and so so she got quite a reputation and went on you know was lucky enough to be asked to make various different things but she didn't we were sort of despairing because we thought how is she going to make a living because you can't buy a room full of dead roses Um, (laughs) and I was saying things like well, of course, it would be lovely, darling. Why don't you take lovely photographs of them and people could buy the photographs? And she was going, don't be so crass, mother. Um, <laughs> anyway, she is a very... Uh, well, she, she's, I find her quite, um, you know, an unusual person in that when she's invited to take part in an exhibition or when she's commissioned to make something, um, the level of kind of research and the sort of depth of thinking that goes on about about the piece, which may look incredibly simple when you see it, but as you begin to sort of delve into it, I'm just always very impressed at the um, you know at the kind of research and stuff that she that she that she's done and what, why. For instance, there was an exhibition that she did in Glasgow um, where there was a building that was about to be. It had been a law court and it was going to become something else. I don't know if it was going to become luxury flats or a hotel, but 
you know, an art company decided they wanted to use it and make some kind of exhibition space before it got, got changed. So she, she, as a Scottish artist, because she's always called herself a Scottish artist because she was born in Paisley, she was invited to, to um, you know, do something there. And uh, Scotland's very famous for its um, carpet makers. So she got some designs from one of the carpet factories and she had the floor of the this building the concrete poured over it and it pricked into it the design of one of Sanderson's carpets and then the where the where the um, and then how shall I describe it it had um, it had uh, the, where all the cracks were where the, where the pattern would be they were filled with earth and then planted in the in the earth were all the different kinds of plants that you could get in Scotland re- representing all the indigenous people who live there. So there were thistles and there were wildflowers and there was things like coriander and stuff that would represent the Indian the Asian community, you know, who because there are quite a lot of... So if you viewed it from a gallery above, it, it just looked lovely and that the patterns for the carpet were all green and coming through this concrete background. But it wasn't just any old seeds that were in them. I mean, it was all very, you know, carefully kind mm-hmm. of like choreographed. And then, so she starts things that she, and then she says, "Well, I don't know what will happen to it after that." It's kind of like in the lap of the gods and see what see see where it see where it will go. Um, and I admire that courage, really. So currently, she um, so she she did a variety of jobs as a way of kind of helping to pay her rent, etc. She worked for various um, opera companies and theatre companies backstage and doing props and set design and stuff like that. Did a bit of teaching. Um, and currently she lives in America. She's the university, she's um, the professor of modern sculpture at the University of California. Well, and uh, you've kindly just given me your time. So um, what is your, what, what's the charity that you support that you would like our listeners to give to? Well, at this time of the year, I'm always very, very concerned about the fact that um, there are lots of people who haven't got anywhere to live. Um, and I think that um, it's particularly ghastly at the moment. I think Ken Loach has just come out and said it's even worse than when he made Cathy come home. Um, so I, if anybody would like to dip into their pockets and make a donation to shelter, I think that's, um, bearing in mind, we're coming up for Christmas, that that would be a good one. Marvellous. And the final question uh, is a horrible one that I've sort of saddled myself and everyone with. Um, this was nominally uh, convened to talk about Doctor Who and its 50th anniversary. It is this week as we speak on Monday just gone. Doctor Who was 52 years old. Really? This Monday just gone. Uh, and uh, so what is your message to the loyal Doctor Who fans out there <laughs> from the great one herself? <laughs> well, I think Doctor Who keeps, um, keeps on evolving. and even. I would say I want all your cosmic thoughts to go out there. I would personally like the next Doctor Who to be a woman and with that I think the internet has just exploded because you know the master is now a woman oh really because you don't have a Roger Delgado's character is now a woman is now a woman oh jolly good Um, well I think I read that Peter Capaldi said he didn't see any reason why the next Doctor Who shouldn't be a woman and I thought that's a very good thought well I've thought it for years and years and years I often thought Miriam Margulies would have made a really really good Doctor (laughs) Who Well, she's completely barking, and, and um, you know she's the sort of female equivalent of Pat Troughton, really. Um, I know I don't see any reason why there shouldn't be a female um, Time Lord. So 
That's my that's my wish for the universe. Okay, watch this space, peoples of the universe. Uh, but with that, uh, Maureen Morris, Mogilaccio, what uh, the great one, what, whichever name you like to go by. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, been a pleasure. That was marvelous. Thank you. Thanks to Maureen and to Ian Atkins, who already does sterling work for Who's Round. He's the person who gets all the blurb online, gets the things himself online, uh, listens to them to make sure they're audible and decent and not rambling. He's great. Uh, he's, he's the person that does all the boring work. And he also uh, sourced uh, Mo for us. So grateful to Ian, as ever, but particularly uh, with this one. Uh, her charity is Shelter, www shelter.org.uk and do remember that in her story the TARDIS did bring the Doctor home uh, so if you can donate that would be lovely uh, every little helps um, there's another Who's Round next time uh, and in the meantime thanks for listening, stay safe, bye bye Big Finish presents Doctor Who Short Trips Lost and Found What happened here, Doctor? It looks like a bomb site. I think that's exactly what it is, the Doctor replied. Not travelled very far then, have we? Ben kicked some bricks around. We seem to have only gone as far as my childhood. And mine, said Polly. But playing on bomb sites was more something the boys did because there was a lot of bomb damage in deepest Hampshire. Polly gave Ben a sweet, but not entirely genuine, smile. I expect you were always hoping to find something horrible, she said. Yeah, said Ben, never did, though. He wasn't going to tell her about the rotting animal corpses he and his friends found on a regular basis. How curious. The doctor was bending down, attempting to shift some bricks, like a puppy digging a hole. What have you found? asked Ben. He'd been waiting for the doctor to discover something out of place, something that might turn into an adventure. A tin of beans, said the doctor, finally managing to unearth his discovery. He held it up. The deep turquoise blue of the tin's wrapper highlighting its clash with its surroundings. Ben was audibly disappointed. Polly, however, laughed. <laughs> How long has that been there? Been there, said Ben, and Polly gave him one of her regular playful slaps. Not long by the looks of it, it's in pristine condition. The doctor held the tin up to his ear and shook it. You won't hear the sea, said Ben. Big finish. We love stories. <laughs>